Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. I am Sultan Ghaznawi and as usual I'm here with another important topic that is of interest to the language service company executives. Today we are going to focus on business management in the context of leadership within a language company and we will speak in depth about that uh, about that subject with Richard Brooks. Richard is the CEO of language service provider K International. Having spent 25 plus years in the language industry, he's currently serving as executive board member of for the European Language Industry Association and is a former executive board member for the Association of Language Companies. Richard holds a triple accredited MBA from Cranfield School of Management majoring in economics and finance. He has contributed to numerous international educational programs and written several publications. Richard recently sat on the UK government initiated Trailblazer Group, created to set standards of professional sales practice in the UK. He is now a director of the Key Account Management Forum, a leading center for research and best practice in strategic sales. Richard is also an active investor in emerging markets and new technology. He has continued to deliver significant value for SME business owners, entrepreneurs, and investors as non-exec board member and trusted advisor. Richard, welcome to the Translation Company Show. Uh, how are you today? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm great. I'm great. I'm very, very, very happy to participate. Uh, I'm very happy you're here, and I'm really looking forward to learning from you today. You're a treasure trove of information. Thank you. You're you're too kind. <laughs> All right. Let's start with the first question here, Richard. Uh, let me ask you about uh, your start in the industry. How did it happen and uh, what motivated you to enter this weird and interesting, unstructured, fragmented industry? Yeah, it's beautiful. I think like most things, it happened by accident. Um, so uh, if we go back to the early 90s, um, I'd left school and was working in light mechanical engineering. Right. In the Midlands in the UK, I'm, I'm, I'm from the UK, from England, and right in the middle of England is the big, or used to be the big industrial centre, and that's where I was born, so no surprise, I went into industry there, and very fortunate, got into management very early on in my career, but I, I came, I mean, I was born, so this goes back even further, I think, I was born, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s, and because of that, had a diet of computers and TV shows like Knight Rider. And, and good music yeah. too. Yeah, and obviously, obviously the, <laughs> the best music. And I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through watching Cobra Kai, I don't know if you've watched it or not, but... I That's haven't been, yet. Uh, oh man, watch it! It's it's hilarious. <laughs> That's hilarious. But there's a there's an instance in that where he he, he meets somebody. He says, "Hey, you're from the '80s. The '80s is the best decade, and it 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 totally is." Anyway, so I'll digress. So uh, coming from a from a place of computers and uh, things like that, I was working in industry and enjoying it. Uh, um, I was very fortunate; I didn't get injured. Uh, lots of people around me did. So that was just kind of the normal thing. But I was uh, very fortunate to, I, I guess, dodge a few bullets as it as it was. Um, always wanted to get into the world of computing because of the eighties and because of watching, you know, trying to live in the future. 
and uh, um, this thing called desktop publishing happened around about 92 93 i guess where it meant that you could actually design booklets and things on a computer and that was anybody under 35 or won't know what i'm talking about but that was an absolute revolution and it meant you could be creative with a computer and got into that completely by accident just because i like computers got into that was experimenting with writing computer code but um, i'm not very mathematically minded so i'm more i guess i'm more creative and when that that came along that that was i thought that was wonderful got into that around about the same time my parents had started a translation company by accident so we were getting asked to make foreign language versions of things and the things would be a magazine or a uh, bus timetable or a a map for the tube it could be absolutely anything so we thought oh hang on we can do the computer side of things and we could obviously do the language side so we stuck it together it worked you know and then, right. 30 years later i'm talking to you but so yeah completely by accident we thought for a long time we thought it wasn't until wasn't until i went to america probably about 15 years ago but we thought we were the only people in the world doing this (laughs) very naively and uh, couldn't find any formal training couldn't find any uh associations as it were it wasn't until we we bumped into the americans and the alc Right. That helps us go, oh, you do the same as I do. So I sort of, for the first two or three years, had that conversation of, you do the same as me. Because <laughs> none of my friends understood what, you know, what a translator was or right, you know, right. what, even what even what DTP was and things like that. So, um, yeah, for, for years and years and years, we thought it was just us. We thought, we thought we'd invented the translation industry ourselves. Obviously, you didn't. Speak and up a bubble, a, right? There's now a huge industry there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just how it was because it was so. Not now because we're we all we're, you know we're all together. But I think back then it was you know it's very difficult to communicate with someone. I mean, this is before email. You know, we communicate by fax machines or by post, which is bizarre now if you think about it. Well, Always have great fun now. T- telling the kids in the office about what life was like before the internet. I mean, yeah, they wouldn't believe you. <laughs> no, they don't. They think I'm some I'm some sort of dinosaur. You know, it doesn't doesn't seem that long ago to me. Absolutely. So when you when you started, that was early '90s. I, I guess uh, the yeah. computers, probably Macintosh machines at the time, which were revolutionizing the the design and so forth. That yeah. they had a, a role to play. How have things changed since that time? I mean, technology has come a long way. The process has changed. Everything has changed. Please describe what you have seen in your journey. Oh, I think it's changed for the better. I mean, back then, uh, the first the first Mac I bought was twenty thousand dollars with I think six fonts and. And then we had to buy the fonts for the printer separately. It was crazy. And it was about the size of a small fishbowl. But we could we could be creative on it. We could produce. We, we made a book about, uh, we translated a book about relational databases. I remember vividly doing it. And we, we you know, we it cost a fortune to do, but it was miles cheaper than than doing Letraset, the old-fashioned way. And I, I think it's changed for the better. I mean, I can remember getting nervous of technology, don't you? I can remember when um, Microsoft Word started to get better. And I can remember thinking, as a graphic designer, oh, no, this is going to replace graphic design because you could do more and more and more in Microsoft Word and you didn't need Quark Express and PageMaker. But that's just silly because it just empowers more people to get involved. And it's been the same with translation i think whereas you know it's the old 
you go to a conference 10 years ago and they say, oh, in five years' time, we'll all be replaced by computers. Right. But it's, it's just empowered more people to create more content, which has needed more translation. So I think over the last 20 years, the industry's exploded. And Absolutely. Most of the projects, so again, if you go back in time, most of the projects, when we started, we were just translating into French, maybe a bit of German. Then, then we started doing figs, so French, Italian, German, Spanish, and everything was into that. It was pretty easy, pretty boring. And then we'd add in a bit of Chinese. And then if you fast forward to now, a normal-ish project can be 40 or 50 languages. You know, it's for the world. Companies are world-ready very quickly and can grow very quickly globally, which is great for our industry. So I think the, the changes we've seen is an astronomical amount of work. You know, we've used, the industry's used automation and technology as much as we can, but there's still there's still too much work to do for us to, to cope with it, and it's still growing. And I think we are still living in the same uh, age-old uh, confused state, assuming that, uh, you know, external threats are coming in, and, and we'll talk about that in detail. But overall, we, we don't have a formal structure. We don't have a formal way of thinking uh, about how to grow our industry. And, and I think we've grown, we've been lucky because our growth has been dependent on the growth of uh, content and content is exploding in terms of uh, growth. Mm-hmm. So as long as there's content, I guess there's demand for us. Yeah, yeah. And especially especially user-created content as well. I mean, the amount, the amount of content that goes on YouTube. I mean, now, if, if I think about my sort of life as a consumer in terms of watching television, I watch YouTube more than I watch the BBC. Right. Whereas we used to watch, you know, I think think back, we used to sit down at seven o'clock and watch the television. Now we'll watch different things as and when we need it. And that's, you know, that's not made by a huge organization. That's made by people with cameras. That's made, you know, it's very, very user-driven and very niche. So, I, you know, what my my passion outside of work is golf. And I'll watch watch YouTube videos about golf all day long if I could. Because it's great. Yeah. And it's made by guys like me who play golf. And it's really sad. And it's really insular and it's about that but it's like yeah i really like that you know and it's it's my thing do each their own yeah for sure there's thousands each their own yeah yeah there's a thousand different things isn't there but you know that's that's empowered people to create content which has a global audience hence you know we're here we're we're here trying to translate it all absolutely and that's what globalization is all about i think because you want to connect to anyone anywhere in the world and and language should not be a barrier and that's where we come in I mean, there's been this, I heard somebody call it a tide of nationalism since 2016. So we've had um, Trump in the States, we've had Brexit in the UK, and there's, there's various examples in Europe as well. And it, it, again, at the start, that can you can start to read, if you read certain newspapers or certain blogs, you can start to get worried about, oh no, we're just going to live in little England and nothing's going to happen. You know, we're not going to care about what happens outside or America or Hungary or France or wherever. Consumers want global content and they want things, they want the best thing from the world, which is driving that. So yes, we have this political mood music, I think at, at, at the moment, which is suggesting nationalism and, you know, America first or like we, we have a, there's a slogan here about taking back control after Brexit, which is bizarre, really. But that's that's how these guys have got elected. And but that, that that's not going to stop globalization because it's here. The genie's out of the bottle. Absolutely. There's no way going back. It's only going to grow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and you can't 
you can't force businesses just to do you know as, as soon as as soon as government starts to start to intervene in a market as well it's just going to mess it up you know they're they're terrible at that sort of thing so market forces are going to prevail and we live in a digital world you know so you know that's that's got to be good for us but but i'm biased because i've got every penny i own invested in translation so <laughs> i guess i would say that <laughs> makes sense okay let's chat about the main subject of our discussion today management in the language industry and this is something you're really good at you're a superstar people um, look up to you so the language industry is a broad term encompassing translation localization uh, interpreting transcreation machine translation and even technology but management is management let me uh, hear your thoughts on whether there are specific rules and frameworks that need to be followed within our industry management is management and it can be learned and it can be developed and it's changing all the time so let me put some meat on that so my my own journey started from so if you're if you're a graphic designer working on a computer you don't really need to lead anyone you don't need to know about management or accountancy or the law or the, you know, th- th- things like that are just things that other people do Right. It's only when you start to have a team and you need your team to start to deliver essentially for you and in, in your name, if you've developed a business, you have a team of three or four people, they're, they're you, you know, and it's it's incredibly personal, your brand and your, your company's brand. So somehow you need to convince these strangers, I guess, about your culture or what you want to do as a business. And so that's led me to a world of firstly knowing nothing and then having some sort of thoughts why people should do certain things. But then you have the, I guess, the epiphany that everyone's different. You know, I think we we all have this moment that, hang on, not everyone's like me. And I think, thank God as well, but not not everyone's like <laughs> an entrepreneur or not everybody's right, right. like some people, like everyone else is different, you know. So you have to think, well, how can I motivate these people and how can I lead these people or help them to achieve something you know not and all that so that's led me down a road of going to university and learning about it basically but it's 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 come out of a place of not knowing and I think I think I'm naturally curious anyway and when the whole DTP revolution happened it's the case of right we need to go and buy the books and do the courses and talk to people and experiment and learn about how that works and you know if, if we'd never done that we'd still be still be using strips of lead and bits of wood to, you know <laughs> to make books and that's 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 bonkers that's crazy that's like the stone age um so that that whole thing for me which is which is why i evangelize about it as well because that whole thing for me has been and continues to be a journey which i'm on and if i learn something i, I genuinely want to tell people about it i want to i want to evangelize i want to share that news because i think there's such opportunity in our industry and it really annoys me right when you see uh account let's pick on accountants because they earn lots of money but accountants and lawyers and professional people other professional services that when i use them as a business my my accountant and my lawyer cost me a fortune you know if i phone up a lawyer it's normally 500 bucks before we get to the meat and potatoes of the conversation you know so that's true. Um, those guys charge and or rather the market allows them to charge an absolute fortune so why why not translators because i suggest that being a translator and an interpreter you, you need to be you know you've got to be so intelligent and you've got to be so into your subject 
and you've got to be so committed to producing a translation. It's it's such a skill, so it should be rewarded. And yet, in the industry, we seem to have this. Some people call it a race to the bottom, but it's a uh, we charge on a commodity-based rhetoric, so we charge per word or per page or per line or something like that. So then the people buying the service assume that, oh, it's just a per word charge. So that gives us something or rather gives them something to to beat us down with. Whereas if you talk to an accountant or a lawyer, they're not going to talk about their cost per hour so much or cost per case or cost per, I don't know, sum if you're an accountant. You know, they're, they're going to be talking about the outcome of the thing that they produce. So when I engage our accountants, they'll talk about the audit or they'll talk about the tax advice or they'll talk about you know, the thing that I can achieve if I'm paying the right level of tax or if my pension is in the right place or my investments and et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think if we look at other industries, they seem to seem to charge more. So it's my own drive to think, well, why? You know, let's let's scratch the surface away and think about how can those guys get away with, you know, hundreds of dollars an hour, whereas we we get away with cents per word. So it's like, right, well, and it's trying to answer that question. And when I think I've discovered something, I like to shout about it. Please. And that, that's it. No, that, that, that's the thing. So hence, hence me saying things like we, we should sell on value and we should develop a value proposition that actually contains numbers as opposed I, I, to... Uh, I, I think it, it also has to do with the nature of our work. I mean, an yeah. accountant competes with an accountant who is locally based and follows the local code and jur- jurisdictional regulations and so forth. And same for a lawyer, but a translator competes with someone who's sitting in Mumbai or in Manila or wherever. And, and someone on the internet looking for to translate a piece of text has options uh, globally and not just in someone sitting uh, across the street from them. So that presents a bit of a unique challenge as well, in my opinion, unless you're obviously a certified translator who's producing court level uh, or court type of content, uh, content, translated content. So I think there might be a bit of a difference, but overall you're right. Why can't we not have a similar uh, solidarity where we can um, uh, work with a, a price that's fair and that's uh, that works for everyone well that's it but we do it to ourselves and absolutely I, i've got i'm i'm the worst guy at this as well i mean i, I used to use this case study of where we we'd quote on a project and then i'd, I'd say at the end you know so i'd talk about value and value creation and thinking about well let's think about the thing that they're going to achieve with the translation and then take it back from that conversation and then the next week, I went, I went to play golf with somebody and he says, oh, Rich, I need some Arabic translation. I says, oh, great. Send it through. We'll give you a good price. And it's like, no, no, I'm supposed to think about, well, what are you trying to achieve? You know, instead of just this straight, straight away, it's a cost per word. It's easy. That's what tech can do to some extent. You can yeah, develop. I, we- I, I think you're right. I think we are programmed to think or automatically assume that people want something cheaper. So I'm going to offer a price first. Yeah. But that's not right, is it? No, 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 not not at all, no, not at all. And you can think you can think to your own experience as a consumer, you know. And it's it's that there's a there's a story. Oh, I can't remember the story. There's a story by Terry Pratchett about purchasing boots and about how expensive it is if you buy poor boots for your feet because every year you have to buy the new boots again. Whereas right. if you buy the expensive boots, and I'm completely getting this wrong, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to Google it. <laughs> but um, and it's the story of where if you if you spend two hundred dollars on a pair of boots, you'll never need to buy a pair another pair again. And it's that story. But you need the investment and the understanding at the start of the project, as opposed to just keep buying a new pair of boots for 
$30 every year. Terry Pratchett sums it up much better than me. He's, uh, the guy was a genius. Yeah, it's that. We, we are programmed to do it. And it's, but, you know, it depends if you're buying or selling because the people that are buying it want you to be like that. Right, right, right. So uh, tell me, let's let's get back to the yeah. the, the, uh, the subject of uh, management and, and uh, within the language industry. Tell me what works in the context of developing a set of structures around different areas of business. Are these specific things, uh, are there specific things to consider uh, for the language industry? Oh man, that's a good question. I think we, we're so broad in as much as we, we help almost every vertical you can think of. So in, in my experience, I've always tried to match the vertical that we're working with. So if we're working with advertising agencies in London, which would have a very open management structure, a very flat structure, yes. we'd have one type of account management. Whereas if we're working with the Ministry of Defence, so the Army, they have a very regimented, pardon the pun, a very regimented management structure, we'll, we'll try and mirror that as well. So I think it's a case of thinking about what clients are doing and then mirroring that. So I'd even mirror job titles. So in as much as some people call their team account directors, Some people call their team admin, some people call them project managers, some people call them localization engineers, completely depends on the space that you're in. But it's a case of matching that up to the customer. If not, I found that people get very confused from a customer point of view. And I think there's loads of jargon in our industry as well, which doesn't help because um, people just don't care. They just want their thing translated or their product on a different shelf and different region or whatever they're trying to achieve. So in terms of Management structure, I think, yes, we need to learn about management because if not, we end up making mistakes. So I think if I'd have gone to university earlier to learn about management, I wouldn't have. God only knows how much money I've wasted on consultants and managers and charlatans, basically, whereas I should have just gone and read the books myself at the start. Yeah, there's some things that we can learn. And I think the best place to start is your local business school to at least give you the at least give you the vocabulary. Of management if you're new to the world of management but um then saying that I'd, i don't think one size fits all in the industry which is, which is what's what's tricky which is what's what's hard to teach because it's a case of well we need to think about and understand the customer and then right. match that back to back to our own organization so uh, richard how do you how do you set up a translation company let's focus on a, a translation alone because we've got interpreting in so many other uh, Yep. types of company language companies you just mentioned that there is no one size fits all approach but what is the general approach what's the general theory of setting up a, a language company what do, what does the composition looks like i i think you need to pick a niche and fill it and i think there's enough niches out there and it's a global world as as you've said and we're all on the internet now so there's there's absolutely no excuse so if you want to translate golf equipment you can fill that niche and you need to pick pick it and fill it because I think if you're a jack of all trades, then it's the old saying, jack of all trades, master of none. And industries are so small that I think it pays. The, the people I've seen who've done really well have been the translation guy in retail or the translation guy in advertising or, you know, whatever, computing, pick your, pick your vertical. And I think it starts from that and then. Sometimes that will happen naturally, so you'll you'll get a load of clients. So if you're in London, it's going to be financial services or creative services just because that's what's there, or legal maybe. That's that's what's there. And then, you know, it's, it's really difficult to rearrange 
the structure of your business if you keep adding different verticals in. So in, in a in an operations management um, rhetoric or conversation, we'd, we'd call these aliens or repeaters. So you can Google that. And it's, it's the case of if you have a production line, although it's not a production line, it's a professional service. But if you think about it as a production line, just for the sake of this conversation, but if we're making the same thing over and over again, your marginal cost will drop, so your cost of production drops, right. and it becomes very cheap to produce the thing that you're producing. Whereas if you're making different things all the time, so if you think think about a car factory, you know BMW probably have 30 different models, but they're all the same really. I mean, okay, we can debate it, but they're made on the same production line, so they're right. made to look different. So you could you could call it implied complexity. They're made to look very different, but they're produced on the same production line so the, their cost of production is as low as possible and it's a similar thing for professional services whereas if you have very similar niches or the same niche that you, you're servicing all the time you'll find that you start bumping into the same people or people move within the customers and you can carve out a place in that niche so it's it's a much better place to be the translation guy in a particular locale or region than it is just to be a a translation guy i think so you so, want to be that go-to person for a specific specialist industry i guess yeah yeah that's that's how I, if if someone's if someone's looking at starting an agency that's where i'd start and it's thinking i'm going to be the translation guy for education or the translation guy for home building or horticulture or whatever just just pick one and fill it okay so th- th- that's a good place to start as you say but let's define what uh, f- makes a translation company so the core competencies or components of uh, a language translation company what does a language service com- uh, company actually do and how does it generate value um, through through this process right that's a good question so i think as well, I think let, let me let me make this statement first. I think it's harder to find a good translator than it is to find a good client at the moment. True. Translators need to be looked after. Very rare resource in high demand. We we say, and it's it's true, and that that's why it can be very expensive, and it's, so it should be right. So it should be. So what do we need to start them? Um, reputation is incredibly important. And it can be, you know, take you 20 years to build and 20 minutes to destroy. So we've got to, you know, be be decent people. I would say, because I do, but I say it's very important to contribute to the industry through some way. So whether that's contribution through the associations or contribution through um, the industry charities or what, whatever that is. But I think it's very it's very important to have a social side of your business, which is the right thing to do. But I think it also pays dividends in terms of long-term business planning as well and it can come back and and actually pay you dividends but not not that's the reason you should do it um so yeah i mean it's and then in terms of the actual mechanics so if we if we said that it's harder to get a decent translator then we need to look after those guys obviously and that includes so what so i'd look at things like what does a translator value and it's things like they need to be paid on time, they need to be paid a decent amount, they need to have the right technology, they need to you need to have decent PMs. So if you're gonna interact with those guys, that interaction needs to be pleasurable. And then there's the other side of the equation as well about the client. So it's thinking about 
what do the clients value and what do they need to do? So if we're going to pick a niche and fill it, we then need to find the cool clients. So how do we define that? Well, some people are going to buy on price regardless and great. That's what they do. They buy the cheapest possible thing they can find, whatever, you know, that those guys can carry on. The Walmart client. Yeah, 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 I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah. No, you, there's, there's almost nothing you can do, you know. You just gotta. No, no. Some sometimes you walk away, you know. But hey, that's another niche to be filled. Like someone has to cater to them too. Yeah, and there's there's tools out there. I mean, the the, the absolute the cheapest thing is free, and it's they can use Google Translate. And right. you know, I've done I've done loads of pitches where the clients turn around at the end and says, "Yeah, but it's free on the internet," which makes my blood boil right but it's <laughs> you know it's great great i'll come back and see you in six months when you've messed it up so some people do i mean there's an assumption that uh, translation is uh, free uh, people yeah. assume because if to, if someone speaks two languages that can be done yeah it can be acquired free and and that's unfortunately a, a misunderstanding a, a misconception if you will it is it is and so some people just don't care and sometimes the translation's done because it's a legal requirement and they don't care it's just uh we need to do this it's a box ticking exercise and they just don't care so i'd suggest that people like that that can't see the value never probably will see the value are going to buy the lowest possible thing so part of it is about picking your clients so yes pick your niche but then we need to pick the clients as well and if we can find somebody who actually cares and wants to spend time on developing terminology and investing with you in you know the, the translation process and developing their own content creation process around your translation process you know you're onto a winner with a client Absolutely. you know because it's a it's a much nicer experience and it's nicer for the pms and it's nicer for the translators when you know it's a decent project to work on since we're talking about core competencies here richard uh, let me actually ask you something Contrary to the general belief that's out there, a translation company does not produce translation. It produces value because translation is produced by the translators. So can you explain to me what components of a translation company generates this, this added value? In my opinion, it has to do, I think, with project management, uh, vendor management, sales, and to some degree, probably quality management as well. Uh, is that how you see that we we deliver value to our clients? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, that's not far off. I think there's there's the perpetual question of there of what why do you need an agency? What 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 do we bring to the table? Why can't we just engage directly with the translator? And to answer that, it's it's about understanding what the customer's trying to achieve. So there's 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 different types of value. Okay, so we we look at there's. There's the value we can achieve in terms of cost savings. And some of those cost savings can come from the cost of transaction. So it's often easier to deal with a, an agency where you either pay a monthly fee or you pay a per project rate. And then they can then manage the translation process, manage the translators, manage the payments, et cetera, et cetera. So we've, we've got some, some accounts which very, very small translations but it's very very frequent and in order for the company to actually procure that themselves they probably have a thousand invoices to look at each month you know different regions different quality and it's, it's just too complicated for the actual um, customer to consider so that in that instance the value we offer is simplicity so we manage to strip away all of that our systems can work with that 
So we, we just offer a just pay one bill once per month and then that's 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 more straightforward. However, as we as we get into this equation of value, I like to think about well, what's the customer trying to achieve? So let's break this word value down a bit because it's a big it's a word that's used a lot, but I think misunderstood slightly. A bit like quality in the right. 90s so when i started my career everything was total quality management and quality control and quality assurance and if we bolted the word quality onto something it almost gave it a, a quality shine you know so it wasn't <laughs> it got overused and i think i think value at the moment's getting out so you'll say people saying things like it's good value for money which is sort of code for saying it's cheap well if we think about value so i'd say that value of a project or value of a service isn't delivered with the service so again if we think about a car the value that you as a consumer that you get out of a car is over the lifetime of that vehicle so you might own a car so i always own my cars for a long time you might own a car for 10 years and the value that i get as a consumer has been over the last 10 years of my car it's not delivered with the car so there's two different things so we can think about that in the context of a professional service so the value of the thing is in the use. So we call it value in use. And then because it's a professional service, we exist in a supply chain. So we might supply a customer and then the customer then has a customer and then another customer and then ultimately a consumer of the translation. So if we are working, if we're translating an instruction manual for somebody and then, you know, we, we're going to send that in. They're perhaps going to package that up. That's going to get sent to a retailer. The retailer is going to sell it to a consumer. Then the consumer is going to read and enjoy, hopefully, the uh, instruction manual at some point in the future. Along that process, there's different opportunities to create value. And you might create value by making a better product at the end. You might create value by making it easier to do business with yourself. So, for instance, if you're if you've developed a translation process and somebody's going to purchase that, that's going to be used in a content creation process, it's about the ease at which that translation can flow back into the content creation process. Mm -hmm. And then you can do things like you can look at, right, well, we can look at further upstream in the content creation process and think, are there things happening there that's causing us and people past us in too much time? So you can do you can do analysis on the content supply chain or the, the the value chain, we might call it. But you can do analysis on that to identify where and when there's opportunities for creating value. And there's different types of value, such as cost saving or time saving and value in terms of delighting the consumer and improving the consumer experience. Or, or as you said, so, abstracting that complexity that the customer doesn't want to deal with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So some of some of my biggest successes have been doing that, literally doing that and spending the time to analyze how the stuff is made, how we fit into that process and ultimately how it's consumed and then presenting that as a pitch to the customer. And if the customer's okay. cool, if, if they're big enough and they care, so right. sometimes they just tell me to go away, but occasionally we can have a conversation and then what i've found is that conversation happens at a much more senior place in the organization than the person buying the cheapest possible translation oh, so obviously someone has to decide who looks at the bigger picture not just yeah, someone who is yeah. given a task a tactical assignment as you yeah are. yeah right yeah because it's something nobody really thinks about you know translations and afterthought we've heard that said 
hundreds of times and it's like can you procure me some pencils can you procure me some translation and great you know often done by somebody quite junior in the organization but if you start talking about um, consumer awareness or consumer delight in different regions and how the consumer perceives certain brands in certain regions that's a very senior conversation so you can get yourself into some very nice position should we say in business and especially I think our industry is quite lean as well I think we use a lot of automation so and I think it's because it, it, now the projects seem to be so I'd say as it changed last 25 years I think the projects are smaller they're more languages and they're more frequent so because of that we've developed workflow technologies and we can either buy them or make them there's plenty to choose from other industries haven't had this pressure so I've found that if you can take that even that philosophy and sometimes a technology to different um, different sections of the value chain or the supply chain there's savings to be made and it's it's a nice conversation if you can have a conversation with procurement about saving money elsewhere and not from your own pitch you know <laughs> because then all of a sudden you're making those guys money and or, then, or, or sometimes you can actually uh, explain to them that what you're delivering obviously costs money yeah. i'm talking about translation but this translation can save you so much money for example when in terms of customer returns uh, and and your target market and so forth yeah. right yeah. you can justify that way as well it's worth working that out so do that sum so if you're doing a pitch for a client do that sum and present it to the customer so they can see it because then at the very worst, they'll know that you've done some mathematics. At the best, they'll start to think, right, okay, we can now see the value in having a, a, a good quality or a, a translation that's fit for purpose. Absolutely. So let's 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 keep going. Once the core competencies are defined, those functions in your organizations that, uh, that deliver value, uh, as we just talked, uh, now what needs to be put in place to get those core functions started and supported? I'm talking about things like project management uh, or your vendor management and so forth that an LSP uses to deliver value to its clients? Yeah, I mean, the standard, the standard translation company, I, I guess, will have the same sort of elements to it, i.e., you know, you'll have, you, you need vendor management. You need to, I think vendor management is probably more important than sales if you're going to do vendor management properly. And in that, I'd include billing and payment and things like that. So you must have a, a sales or marketing team. Right. You must have a project management team or you don't really offer any value. And I think we've seen increasingly, we've seen more more creatives work. So we we have a lot of creatives work in our space. Might be down to the customers that we have and the clients we have, but um, we need to have that creative element. And then that's split into, into guys that can write code. So tech or engineers, software engineers, and um, actual creatives. And that could be, you know, web creatives or print creatives still. Print meaning sort of paper it can be can be digital paper but um so there's there there are some common elements and i've, I've seen a lot of a lot of success around so we, if, if we talk about sales it it's i think it's more important for the sales team to actually get out of the way and let the engineers discuss or let the translators talk to the writers or let the you know the project managers talk to the account directors at the, at the customer because through that you can start to see how value is created or you can start to innovate right. when when we get this this problem of like one sales guy either holding on to accounts or standing in the way of different accounts and that's there's a difficult 
place there to actually innovate because I think they're driven by, you know, and bless them, I love salespeople, but they're <laughs> driven by commission, they're driven by revenue, so they're driven by numbers. Completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're more about what what are we going to sell this month, and it, perhaps they're not bothered about the bigger picture. But if you start, if you talk to translators and engineers and creatives, then they're they're doing it. They, some of their drive for doing it is because they want to do it, so they want to translate. If you talk to a translator, they love translating. It's it's incredible. Or a creative, they love to create stuff. And if you can get that environment going on, so the sales guy gets out of the way quite quickly, again, that can start to innovate and through that innovation, create value between the two enterprises. And I always like it, right? I always have this little test. If we can, I always say, if we can walk in a room and right. not know who's working for who in a meeting, so if any everybody's all mixed up in like a big soup, we don't know who's working for who. I like that. It's messy, but out of that mess comes innovation. And you get people saying, well, what if we do this? Let's try. You know, the th- things like that. Love those conversations. Whereas if it's a formal, we're going to sell you a million words and someone's going to buy it for, you know, X cents a word. There's no innovation in that. and There's very little value created. Absolutely. So uh, l- let's continue on that note. As you know, most of us in, in this uh, entrepreneurial role, haven't been to business schools like you have. Some of us have been translators who decided to hire other translators and form a company. What skills and knowledge would we need at a basic level to build that business acumen quickly without going for an MBA? Right. I've, I went for an MBA because I was stupid. And I mean, stupid in terms of I kept making mistakes and I was sick of making mistakes. So I was sick of employing the wrong people. I was sick of paying an absolute fortune for consultants. I was having conversations with people, accountants and lawyers and people like that, not really understanding. And, you know, as your business grows, you become, you know, more more money, more problems, as somebody said. You know, as, as, as the business grows, there's just more stuff to do in it. And it gets, you can sit down and it can get pretty scary sometimes with the size of the numbers flying through it. So I needed to fill in that knowledge. So the way I did it was I went to an MBA I wouldn't have known any other way of doing it MBA sort of got this and again they do this to themselves bless them MBAs right I get another group of people but they are they try to be these superheroes in business and I think if you meet a good one you won't they won't tell you so we used to, we had this joke at uni about people who put the letters MBA on their business card or on LinkedIn because <laughs> it's why 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 bother telling why bother telling people that you do that qualification just like any other and then it should be implied that you've learned about a particular topic so that's a strange thing i think be weary of people who tell you they've got an mba as well um because it's nonsense and again the the quality of them varies so um that's crazy i i think you need to do some sort of training if you want to be in management and i think that my own story is I'm I'm at so I was at uni so before this call today I was at uni I was in I was in a finance lecture I am constantly trying to learn things because things change all the time and we need to know what's going on and what my MBA did for me really because I come from a completely unacademic background so I started work at 16 and you know basically worked in a factory bashing things with a hammer that's that's about as you know, as, as skillful as I, I am, really. <laughs> wow. And it, 
yeah, it was great. I used to love it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd do it for free now if they let me, but um, it's, it's all different. But uh, it, it's the case of you need to be able to have that conversation with people. If not, you, you can get talked for a fool. So all the MBA did for me was to give me a vocabulary so I can sit down with a lawyer and talk to them or an accountant, more importantly, and talk to them. And I know what they're, if they're talking about EBITDA or net present value or, you know, I know that they probably can't do the, the sum and I know that I can, if you know what I mean, because I've studied right. it. So it just gives you that empowerment to think, right, well, if I'm going to learn, if I'm going to run, a, I think if you're going to run a business, you need to know about this stuff or you're going to get into trouble. You can learn it on YouTube, you can read a book, or you can do an MBA. It depends what you want to do. My, my MBA for me was a collection of management courses that I did over 18 months. Incredibly intense. At, at my time, I was 29 when I did it. At my time in life, it was the right thing to do. But I think as as Mintzberg, so there's this chap called Henry Mintzberg, who's a bit of a management guru. I'd nearly finished my MBA and he's bought, he's wrote a book called Managers Not MBAs that criticised the American model of MBAs and said that it's pointless going through university, coming out of university, going straight into the MBA programme, coming out of there and working for JP Morgan, basically. I'm completely paraphrasing this book, you know, and his life's work. And it's right. It's silly. You need to have some sort of management experience. You need to have some sort of business experience. You need to know the rules when you're managing, right? So You do. Yeah, you do. How, how, how do you learn that? Well, through, you know, getting beat up a few times and... You need to go around the block. Ah, absolutely. But absolutely. I think there's so much. I think what's what's different. He's talking about what's different. 25 years, you know, 25 years ago, we've got such an access to information now. And I saw that. Um, I think I think Harvard opened up all of their courses. So, and I'm pretty sure for 200 dollars you can do one that's accredited. So you can quite quickly put together a right. We'll study about finance. Can study about the law. Can study about economics. Can study about strategy. You can put put something together, for probably four or five thousand dollars, if you want to be accredited. If not, watch the YouTube videos because you, you need you need to learn about it. If not, even better, read the book or phone phone me, text me, and I'll give you some <laughs> topics to read. Right? <laughs> yeah, Richard's there. He's <laughs> yeah. He's just text me. I'll 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 talk to you all day about it. But I think you need to you need to start to learn. You need to learn about it. If and all, all it can do, you're amazing. If you increase your vocabulary, like learning a new language. Right. If you increase your vocabulary, people treat you differently. If yeah. that guy over the table thinks, Christ, this guy knows about EBITDA, I mean, you know, and if, so, so if you're selling your company, read a book about company valuations before you do the negotiation. So I, I, I guess this, you'll get another multiple on top. Uh, absolutely. I, I guess that's the whole purpose of this, this podcast. We are educating these people with the basic tools and knowledge that they need to know to run their businesses, I guess. And and you're providing that today, that this advice is valuable. I mean, people will be listening to this for years, I guess. Um, let, let me that, move that on. Took to me, that, that took me maybe 10 years to learn. So I'm, I'm being quite flippant now, I guess. But <laughs> you know, I've, sat, I've sat in meetings and cried because I've got no idea what people are talking about. And you feel stupid. And then you do the thing of, like I said earlier, I'm just a guy that bangs something with a hammer. You know, I'm not, I don't know about this sort of thing. I don't know about net present value or, you know, valuations or tax or, you know, le- everyone's human. You can learn about it just like they did. I'm, I'm testament to that. If I can learn it, anyone can. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're a smart guy, so let's put it there. <laughs> that. <laughs> now that we have covered some of the basics, let me ask you about specific core functions in a translation company. 
please describe to me what is production in the context of a translation services company and how should it be created and maintained as a department? The words, the word production, again, we called our translation department production. And I always thought that was because I came from a, you know, this the engineering background where we would have a production department that actually produced products. And then we approached it like, so it, it, it was almost, now maybe everyone else has gone through the same journey of thinking, we have a department that produces something. So as we've, we've said earlier, the, the translation department is the, is the engine of the organization. The project managers produce the only thing that we can sell, which is their time basically. So because of that, well, how do we start to manage it? And I guess quite quickly, if you get into the literature quite quickly, it uses terminology like production. And that's probably because a lot of it's born in the 1950s. So it comes from people like Mintzberg and Drucker and people like that. It comes out of good old fashioned management that we've learned about, you know, and you can go and read the books. So now, unless we need a new term now, right? But um, it, it, that, 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 that word of production, I really like it because it means that somebody simple like me can understand it. Some stuff happens, a process happens, some stuff comes out the other side. And because of that, we can measure it. So we can measure the inputs, we can measure what's going on, and we can certainly measure the outputs. That's relatively straightforward. And I think that's where, that's where, it, that's where it comes from. In terms of the core functionality, well, that, that is the core functionality. And we're essentially selling our expertise and our project manager's time. How we apply that to the particular customers and clients and sectors is, is the secret sauce, I guess that's that's up to us and that's where we differentiate as well right um, yeah, yeah it is it is and it's different depending on the niche that you're in it's different and you know so for our our government accounts are very different from our creative accounts like completely different mm-hmm. it's bizarre it's, it's crazy how di- so it's like a different business um so many niches but and, and on 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 similar lines, uh, uh, we have vendor management. So please talk to me about vendor management or resource management. How does that play uh, an important role in uh, shaping a translation company? Yeah, sure. So if we look at if we look at procurement in a wider in a slightly wider sense, um, again, let me put some meat on this. So we had a recession in after the great financial crash. In my experience, following that, I think procurement was starting to get more important, shall we say, at our customers. Well, ever since that, that sped up that process. So in between, so in between, say, 2010 and more recently, when I've, I've done pitches or I've been involved in, in presenting to clients, we ultimately we present to, to the procurement team or that at some point in that process is procurement. If I compare 25 years ago with now, I think that procurement person now tends to be more senior and they have more power in the conversation. And I think that came, I might be wrong, but I think that came out of the 2008 recession where companies very quickly needed to save money. And an easy way of doing that is to lean on your suppliers, to get that off your suppliers. That's, that's you know, well documented. And that's quite, quite easy, in inverted commas, to do. So procurement's been through a bit of a revolution. And it's had a lot of a lot of academia thrown at it, and there's a lot of MBAs or people from business school going work in procurement. I saw a stat the other day. I think there's for, for every ten MBAs, eight go into procurement and two go into a sales based role. So wonderful. 
if we then look at vendor management as well as a part of procure so if that's so if vendor management is kind of our procurement you know if that's the procurement department of a translation agency then therefore i think vendor management needs to be strategic so what does that mean for it to be strategic that means it needs to be linked to the company's goals so instead of somebody just can you go away and buy me a million words of french and make sure it's cheap well that conversation needs to be linked in terms of what we're trying to achieve as an organization which by very nature is linked to what our customers are trying to do and our customers customers so that all links together it's i think it's crazy to think that we, we operate in silos or can operate in silos so vendor management needs to be a very important part of your business almost board level i'd say where you talk about that as a standing item on the board meetings standard item on the agenda so it has to be respected because if if we think a translation company sits in the middle we need a, a collection of translators but we said they're more important than clients and a collection of clients and we we sit in the middle and we match the two together and we add value in the middle and um that's that so in at work we'd have conversations every day about pipeline and about sales and about what's happening what's coming in well i think we need to have that same conversation about our capacity and our uh, strategic relationships with our suppliers. Absolutely. I think it would be fair to say that um, we are looking at the other side of the equation now, that sales yeah. and business development is also a core activity of a translation company. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, please tell me how this department should be created, who should be involved in it, and how should it run? Well, it's normally created by the entrepreneur. The, the entrepreneur would, uh, and some, sometimes this comes out of somebody being a translator and then getting too much translation to do on their own. So they either employ people or they ask their, their network to help. Sometimes it's an entrepreneur that's seen a niche and has started to fill it. So because of that, it becomes the most important item in a small LSP because it's the entrepreneur and it's their pet projects. I think as an entrepreneur, as your business grows, it's very difficult to do, but I think very quickly in that process, if it's starting to be a success, you need to get out of the way and let a process drive the sales. So why do you need to do that? Well, if you don't do that, it limits the the possibility of growth. So it limits the, the maximum size that a business can be because everybody you, will be you become a bottleneck, time. basically. Yeah, yeah. And I think and it'll kill you. Right. So I've had a lot of lot of people I know have been ill in their 40s. I mean, I'm at the, you know, the, the wrong side of 45 now. So, so you know, it's, it's crazy. It seems to happen so quickly. <laughs> but there's people who, you know, become ill in their 40s because of stress. And it's a killer. You can work very hard and be very successful. But, you know, so, so what? You, you know, you want to obviously retire and go into the sunset one day, don't you? You know, but um, so. It's good fun. It's very addictive, but it can be ill for you. It can be bad for your health. So you need to be very careful about it. It's a very difficult process for an entrepreneur to go through. That realization that, well, I need to go and do something else. Someone said to me once, it's better to leave five minutes earlier than five minutes late. And I've got those words written down. I like that. If you think about it, you know, if you start to consider, well, if I'm leaving five minutes too late, I can destroy the value in my own business, which is Absolutely. very. Absolutely. That's so powerful, those words, actually. Counterintuitive. Yeah, you can. Yeah. I'll tell you what, and as, as an entrepreneur, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest with you, it's difficult to do. And I think the, the skill set as well of 
creating something from nothing is very different than the skill set of running an, an enterprise and certainly running a sales department. These are very, very different skill sets that if you can do all three, oh my goodness, congratulations. But oh, you're a superhuman. <laughs> I, I bet your next month's mortgage payment you can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so Richard, for me, uh, those three business functions is what a language company actually needs to exist, which is production, uh, vendor management, and sales. Yeah. I mean, once you have these three, you can call yourself a translation company and, and work from there. Measuring success rates through KPIs in these three functions is critical. Uh, please give me a couple of examples of what would you measure in production, uh, resource management or vendor management and sales. Uh, I know it will be different for every company as their goals are different, but in general, what would you recommend people should keep an eye on? Yeah, sure. Well, let's 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 start from the, the last one and work back because that's easier. So in terms of sales, I think it's, all, it's, it's important, but it's almost pointless to measure the top line because we need to measure what, what we call the third line. So if we, if we were to look at a, a normal P&L, normal profit and loss account, it says something like sales or revenue at the top, cost of goods sold or cost of sales, depending on what country you're in. So the second line is the cost of the things that you would have had to buy in order to sell the top line. And then the third line is gross profit. That's what's important, the gross profit. It's the margin that you make on the on the deal that's important. And you need to almost put that in the DNA of your organization. And it, it upsets me when I see translation companies issue press releases that say crazy things like XYZ has won a $100 million deal with ABC Inc. Because it's almost pointless. It doesn't, you know, who, who cares? What matters is how much value they're going to create for their shareholders, which is the third line in that in that P&L. So, when I my sales team and the people that I advise that always will always pay pay rewards on that third line you know if we if, if we're looking at that so that's that there's also an element in sales of strategic accounts because accounts that we've worked for before or niches that we've worked for before by nature are cheaper to serve than ones that are brand new so if you look at the acquisition costs of a customer you may have a sales process that generates uh, opportunities that are in different niches and different opportunities time and time again. Well, that will, you know, you have to I always think you have to buy your customers. There's a, there's a, each customer you have, there's an acquisition cost. And if you sit and work it out, it might be actually quite expensive. So on a large account, it might take you like a year or 18 months to actually break even. So obviously in terms of, in terms of running your account, running your company rather you can't have too many of those accounts you can we call it over trading so you can bring too much in at once and make a loss on it a net loss you know it's going to take that time for those those accounts to turn positive so we need to look at strategic fit and we need to look at third line from a from a sales point of view what's in sales it's very easy to pay off the top line and that's why people do it and it's very I'd say easy. Easy is perhaps the wrong word, but you hear a lot of stories about large numbers, and that's what people like to tell each other in the bar, isn't it? You know, my business is a hundred million dollars, or mine's fifty million. It's like a huge contest, right? But if what matters is what not what you earn, but it's what you keep. So it's, it's about it's about planning that. I remember once I had dinner with a very successful entrepreneur, and I asked him 
similar question, right? Asked him his secret. And he got his palm of his he got his hand out, palm up, flat. And he says, Life, if you think about it, he says, if you got some sand and put it into your hand, the sand had run through your fingers. And he says, That's like life and money. Just think of that money running through your fingers. It's not how much you put through your fingers. It's how much you keep. And he says, it's really difficult to keep that sand in your hand because it just disappears. You can spend <laughs> money quick nowadays, can't you, right? It just Absolutely. disappears. And I was, Again, there's some words to live by. I always think about that in my personal life and the business life as well. I think about, well, how much of that, you know, that contract are we actually keeping that we can reinvest, you know, so... So there's that. So, so sales teams and rewards need to be based on that. In terms of KPIs for the rest of the business, I think that needs to match with the customer. So we need to think about what we're actually trying to achieve and what the customer's purchasing, because somewhere in that agreement should be a service level agreement. Might might be, there might not be, but somewhere in that, whether that's you know, we've got ones that say we can be 99 point something percent on time and these crazy sort of six six sigma agreements and things like that. And that, that needs to be reflected in that. But at the same, the same sort of thing, I've seen it. I've seen a lot of people do like net promoter score and use that in order to pay business. So they're looking at how happy is the customer and how uh, likely is the customer to actually refer you to, to another potential and that's important. We all need to share in that. But it's incredibly difficult. The further away you get from a sale, it becomes more and more difficult to reward, I think, which I think is why you get these sales guys buying Porsches and Ferraris, you know, getting the big bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. And, and, and same KPIs would apply for um, things like, for example, vendor management, uh, how happy your translators are. Uh, how many of them have, uh, for example, um, logged complaints and how those complaints were addressed, how quickly? It, it, would you measure those things as well? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. But particularly around happiness, although that's subjective, but I, I would I would suggest, so if, if we go back to the original comment of it's perhaps harder to find a decent translator than a decent client, well, then therefore you need to look after them. So you can look at that on if if you're a larger LSP, you can you can look at look at social media and you can look at comments coming from that. You know, I try and try and extinguish fires quickly as as opposed to let them spread. Yeah, it's always difficult to measure employee happiness or partner happiness or supplier happiness, but you, you need to at least have a go. True. Let's uh, discuss the support functions with uh, within a language uh, services company. Uh, please describe to me what they are and how they are set up in the context of internal and external factors. By by that, what I mean is you mentioned earlier that everything in our company that happens has to be driven by internal and external uh, influences, uh, for example, competition and so forth. So management, for example, or uh, um, accounting, these, these I guess these are, these are some supporting functions within your organization that, that make the, the core functions or enables them to, to uh, you know, function properly. Uh, how do you, you, how are they set up? What would be a perfect structure for them? So uh, it depends what's important to you. I, I think one, one word of warning at the moment, if we, if we head towards recession again, which I think we're already in, so as, as this recession bites, we might be in a buoyant industry ourselves, but we, we may find that certain verticals 
are going to start to have problems such as tourism or hospitality. They're getting huge problems in the UK. Some right. are getting bailed out, some aren't. So we need to keep on top of collecting the money, for, for want of a better word. And th- that function, I would suggest, needs to be strategic and looked at very carefully. Now, whether you partner with somebody to help you happen or whether you bring it internally, I think that's your own choice. But that needs to be looked at very closely. And I always like to think if we're doing business with somebody and essentially lending someone some money for 45 days, well, we're taking on that risk. So we need to look at what's the risk of them not paying through them going bust or you know going bankrupt or whatever. So that process, I think, needs to be looked at at a very senior level in your business. So it needs to be strategic. In terms of the others, again, it depends on what you're doing. I, I know s- some people that bring uh, tool development in-house and develop their own tools. Right. I've experimented with this. We've, I've developed some tools in-house for some niches that's been successful. I've developed some tools which have been incredibly expensive and cost me an absolute fortune. Our IT projects seem to be they can suck the life out of you, you know in terms of missing deadlines and in terms of cost as well so sometimes we partner with people sometimes we we employ the developers and and make it ourselves comes comes down to a make or buy decision based on the market and i think a huge dollar for that is down to the entrepreneur's uh, intuition i think thinking about right well obviously if we if we make the stuff then it's going to be ours when I, I'm gonna, let me tell you a case study. When I was at business school, mm-hmm. one of the best case studies I was given in terms of strategy was it was a. I'm not, I never knew the name of the company, so I got, if I knew it, I'd share it with you. But it was a a company that made products. So a company that made um, they were they were manufacturing. So they made something. I, I don't actually know what it was. I know it was I know it was engineering. It's something like Rolls Royce. It had something to do with jet engines. I don't know what it was exactly. Right. But they made a part for that that supply chain and they said that they would develop very expensive and very uh cutting edge uh, production capability in their own organization and that would be through tooling and machinery and things like that 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 would last about five years and they said at the end of the five years so they pretended that all the students were the board so so at the end of the five years do you a sell the tooling to your competitors or b take it out into the north sea and sink it so nobody can ever get it so obviously everybody in the class says b let's destroy the tooling (laughs) so competitors are years behind all right what the guy the guy from the company then came to present to us and he says what we do we release it to the market so he said everyone thinks you're stupid so why do you do that we said to him and he says right well one we know that the market's then five years behind us in terms of development two we know that they'll never develop their own solution in terms of capability because they'll always buy ours and three we can work out their marginal cost of production therefore their profit and price genius right now you can apply that to our industry so have a look at the translation companies that are making their own tools and rather selling them and you can think are they giving you their very latest thing or are they giving you the stuff that they don't want anymore so it's it's that thing so in in particular it depends who i'm competing with it depends on the niche but sometimes i'll think about it and think well it's probably worth developing our own or having it developed outside the industry because 
if the person selling it to you has got a vested interest in you not having a particularly good solution, then you may not have a particularly good solution. They're creating dependency there. Yeah, yeah, you betcha, you betcha. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the, these support functions we just uh, discussed, management, uh, accounting, quality control, assets and properties. Why are they important to be defined and uh, assigned ownership? I think partly as as you grow, you there, there, obviously there's an end game in this somewhere, there's an exit. I think most people need a talk about exit strategies. I think most people haven't got an entry strategy first. So we need to think about an entry strategy, but we need to think about an exit strategy. If the business can run uh, without you and through these um, standardized uh, blocks of, of business, then that's that increases the multiple that you're going to get. If um, Which helps. And then obviously if these things are split into different groups, you can then study it and then develop and compare um, each group and make sure that they're as efficient as possible, you know, right. for that. So right. that, that that can that can help you do that. And, and, and what is the role of the company owner in all of this? Some of us ads throughout the day and switch roles based on what is needed. Well, that that's that's tricky because I mean you'll you'll try and do it all by, um, you know, you'll try and do it all yourself because you've learned the hard way and you're a you know big. Big you think you know everything. <laughs> you think you know that, and yeah, most most yeah. people do, right? And it, uh, again, I think the almost the the, the personality type of creating it. I wake it. Wake, I mean, you must be mental to wake up one morning and think, "Oh no, I'm going to risk everything I've got and create a business that nobody's ever heard of in order to do a particular thing that nobody thinks we need." That's the, the, the competitor's free. It's called Google Translate, and it, you, you must be you must have rocks in your head to go through that process. But some <laughs> people do. And they make a success of it. So that determination, I think, and that that drive, um, it can 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 pay dividends, but in a certain in a certain place. And it, I think um, if if we if we then apply that to different functions of the business, it's not necessarily the right attitude or the right personality to to run that. You know. So for instance, you, you wouldn't have an entrepreneur run your accountancy function. You'd want a nice boring accountant and that's nice <laughs> so i was like when i, was, I love my accountant right? very stereotypical if, there. If, if you could meet him you'd love him too yeah but i want him to be boring i don't want any excitement i want it to be nice and straightforward and yeah he's a very conservative guy and i like that i don't want to talk to an entrepreneur i've got friends that are entrepreneurs they're crazy and they're good fun but i want my accountant the guy looking after the money to be boring and i like that Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question for you, Richard, is, that, and I know this is a very deep topic, and we will need at least one episode for each of these <laughs> topics. But let me ask you about uh, what business frameworks do you recommend for language company owners uh, to follow and apply to their practice to build discipline, structure, and predictability? Oh man. Okay. So I know you're a big fan of Porter's framework. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then that was that was how I was taught. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm coming out of a world that if I'm going to study industry, I'm going to look at Porter's five forces. I also look at Porter's work in terms of the value chain. So, right. if we're going to examine a supply chain or a content supply chain, then there's there's opportunities to add value in that, and also developed a tool called the value. You can Google it called the value chain that can help you to understand that because. Part, partly in that world, the word 
value isn't particularly well defined it's it's very well used but not well defined and there's not much in the way of um literature or frameworks to help us to sort of understand our values created over sort of multi-company complex things like that um to answer your question i think one of one of the best tools to come out of academia recently is alec osterwalder's um business model canvas which is a like a nine box model that shows you different boxes for different elements of the business and it's a very it's a bit hard to page right yeah and it's yeah you can print it out you print it out and then brainstorm and the reason it's good is because it's it's easy to understand so it's not covered in you know jargon or nonsense so within probably 15 minutes you can explain it to somebody and then you and your team can start to have a structured conversation around it and it's much more powerful having a structured conversation than just a, a a conversation about nothing you can end up you know having uh, agendas or hidden agendas or um you know going off at crazy crazy tangents so that that looks at the the nine what he considers to be the nine elements of a business and um yeah it helps you to have that conversation with your team and that's literally a conversation with it on the wall with a load of post-it notes and stick your ideas on. And at the, the centre, I like that model because at the centre of it is about the value. It's about it's got the it's got the value proposition at the centre. So it's about it's in essence it's about value creation anyway, which is something I'm passionate about. So that helps you have that conversation quickly of well, what's the thing that we're trying to achieve? You know, not we're a translation company doing 200 languages. But it's what the what are we trying to help our clients to achieve? So sell uh-huh. more products in different markets right so it's and it just have that different mindset can help you to develop um different pricing strategies or different ways of interacting with your account or different ways of managing the account and things like that and, and let's discuss about strategy development not only you have to have a destination or goal in mind but also a roadmap of how to get there in the context of translation companies, uh, what is the best way to accomplish uh, developing a strategy? So we need to be careful that we understand um, uh, the difference between strategy and tactics. And right. when I've, I've done somewhere, so um, a quick quick plug for the ALC, I guess when, when I've been when I've been to the ALC on conference, especially. And we've worked on we've worked on strategy workshops there. It it almost seems like the strategy part is relatively straightforward. It's then the how do we do it question, which is the well, you know, so we're talking there between strategy and tactics. And to actually determine the strategy, I think, well, you just gotta pick a niche and fill it. So whatever you're good at, keep doing it. You know, and it's it's that it's, it's almost that simple. I know it's not that simple in real life, but if we're gonna if we're gonna pick a particular niche for you to fill, go and fill it because there's huge economies of scale if you do the same thing, or if you work in the same um, area. The tactics of how you're going to do it comes down to management, and it comes down to KPIs and motivation, and you know things, things structure, particularly, and how you're gonna. Um, install that into your account so it's it's off it's, it's i think it's slightly misunderstood the word strategy in as much as i was talking about this the other day at that event but we you know we you can 
you can use strategy too much and if you have a so the instance i always give is we we'd say to we say to a sales team or a senior management team right we need to have strategic accounts or strategic relationships well then everything becomes strategic because the things that they do is the most important things to them and therefore they think the company and it's that sometimes things are purely transactional which is fine and sometimes things are strategic so it's thinking about the difference between those two um so i suggest you managers need to have an understanding of your strategy itself it's the whole print it out and put it onto the wall you know randy morgan one of, one of my translation company heroes said to me once he says rich if it matters print it out and stick it on the wall and they're good they're good words as well you know it's like yeah let's just write it down so everyone can see and that's what we're trying to do whatever we're trying to achieve as a business Get it on the wall so everybody knows what it is. And it needs to be succinct. Absolutely. It needs to be easy to understand. And then the actual tactics of how we're going to do it, well, part of that comes down to the skill of the management you've got. No, so I was just, just going to say, you've, you've, you've got to let those guys work within boundaries, you know? Absolutely. Give them some freedom, but at the same time, they need to understand yeah. what the vision and end goal is so they can yeah. break it down into tactical pieces, I guess. Yeah, you betcha. You betcha. Yeah. And you're, I think your enterprise, your company will be much more valuable if it can operate without you in it. Uh, it but it has to be a well-oiled machine. It you, does. You're responsible for setting it up. Well, yeah, you are. Right? Yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about products. Uh, I mean, in, we are in a services industry, a knowledge-based services industry. How do you carry out product development uh, for the translation service? Uh, what criteria and evaluation do you apply to make sure um, a product is a good fit for the market? Well, we, we've had this thing called... Um, servitization which has come come from the manufacturing world so people making things have then realized that if they add a service onto that thing they can they can make more money you know so they so they they sell consultancy or training or um, product support and and things like that and it's it's kind of gone full circle now because everybody's selling the the service so it's come back to it's come back to product development as well i think product for me in the in the world of professional services means that it needs to be easy to understand so we'll we'll talk about strategic accounts and we'll talk about value creation and we'll talk about having conversations about the customer's customer which are very important but at the same time it needs to be very easy to understand and there will be a huge amount of your accounts that just want to buy i don't know translation or terminology management or whatever the thing that is and it needs to be easy to do business with you it needs to be easy to transact with your company and that's always a test if it's difficult and if there's barriers to do business then you know each at each barrier you risk losing losing people which you you will you people will drop out of the sales process at every opportunity they can so that process needs to be as smooth as possible and a, right. an easy way to do that is to develop products in adverted commas, um, so things that are easy to purchase. So the, 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 it, it comes down to user experience, I guess. Yeah, I think so. That's, that's a much better way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, like any other industry, uh, translation services is also a bit hard to define. Uh, a niche in it uh, and we just talked about that there's so many different combinations and factors that you can put together in developing a niche such as like for example service type plus language combinations uh, industries you want to target sub industries within those and so on 
where do you start this assessment and how do you get to find the best combination for you? Man, that's a good question. That's a good question. So I've, I've had success working in a niche that's defined by the customer. So what, what does that mean? If you work in the creative industry in London, you tend right. to bump into the same people. And there's there's a finite amount of people. They have their own trade bodies and associations and language almost. And if you can crack into that, then you get referred and you, you can move around within that. So it's it's worth being the translation guy in a particular industry. So it's great fun. Our conferences and our industry are you know, the best in the world. They're great fun. But it's well worth going to other people as well. We're going to retail conferences or pharmaceutical or cosmetic or whatever your particular thing is go in that and have a have a have a swim in their pool as well because you know it's 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 uh, it's worth doing that eventually you'll find a place where there's no competitors and it's a bit like that book the blue you know the the blue ocean what's it called right. um blue ocean strategy right and the the premise of that book is Let's compete where there's nobody else. So where the ocean's red and there's plenty of sharks and death and blood and everyone's getting beaten down on price. Can we not sail off metaphorically into a place where, you know, perhaps you're the only translation guy. There's very few translation guys. And I think that's what entrepreneurs need to do anyway. You should always be looking for where the, the highest margin is. You know, anyway, that's kind of why you need to have this helicopter view of, of the world, I think, and the skills that you use to start your own business are not the same skills. Yeah, and it makes life a lot easier for you if, if you were to operate in that type of environment. The world has changed dramatically, very quickly. And we need different skill sets for employees and partners. We need different different skill sets in terms of entrepreneurs and different you know markets have appeared and some have died. And so we're going to go through this transition period and it'd be the guys that can can benefit from it you know the quickest i think that all that all win absolutely finally uh, please share a few words about your company k international and why is it a unique language services company yeah cool so yeah so i am the chief exec of k international we're a uk-based lsp and we translate for uh british government and various sectors in the uk helping uk companies to uh, sell their products abroad basically um why is it unique oh my goodness well i think yeah to answer that question i guess we'd have to analyze the whole industry <laughs> i think we we enjoy what we're doing um we're quite a fun business but then lots are right lots are lots of people meeting this industry are good fun we like to think that we can understand the customer and what the customer is trying to achieve in terms of process and in terms of who their customers are and what they ultimately want to do with the translation and what you know value is going to be extracted from that translation over the over the time are oh, we develop some systems in-house and the systems we develop in-house they're always open we always use open technology to develop them and they you know and therefore they link with our customers content creation systems hopefully reasonably well to make it very simple for them to interact with us and develop that and yeah we, we offer a full full translation service so you know all the voiceovers and uh, software strings and artwork and dtp is all bolted on as well sounds uh, very exciting and if people want to reach out to you 
follow you or learn about you and your business, what is the best way to get in touch? So I'm on on Twitter. So at Twitter at Richard M Brooks on the old Twitters, or uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. If you do search me on LinkedIn, you'll see my smiley face on LinkedIn. <laughs> if not, you can email me uh, richard.brooks at k-international.com. And our, our URL for the company is k-international.com. Richard, it was a pleasure speaking with you, and I can't thank you enough for all this information and experiences you've shared with us today. I'm hoping that we will have you on this podcast in the future so we can discuss some of these topics in much deeper detail to the benefit of the executives that are listening and learning. I appreciate all your time today. Thank you, man. It's always nice to talk to you. As always, I'm going to review three products that have relevant applications and uses for executives in the language industry. Today, I'm going to be talking about management books that I would recommend for any language industry executive. First on my list is the 10x rule, or 10 times rule, I guess that's how you read it. Written by Grant Corden, this book says that you should set targets for yourself that are 10 times greater than what you believe you can achieve and that you should take actions that are 10 times greater than what you believe are necessary to achieve your goals. This book helps with the growth mindset both on a personal and business level for any entrepreneur. I give this book a 10 out of 10 and highly recommend it. Selling the Invisible written by Harry Beckwith is second on my list. It is a field guide to modern marketing of services, something you cannot show to people. It's not tangible at the moment, it is discussed and people have to visualize the end result. This book talks about how to properly explain your service products in a way that people can relate to it and end up committing to purchase it from you. A really nice book. I give it a 10 out of 10. Third on my list is The End of Competitive Advantage by Rita McGrath. If you are familiar with Michael Porter's Five Forces and uh, Competitive Advantage Framework, this book actually argues that disruption doesn't have to involve a low price or new segment of customers. It talks about how some companies are so successful and innovating again and again, something that language companies could think about. I give this book a solid 10 out of 10. There you have it. I had a very candid and fun chat with Richard Brooks. He's one of the smartest people in our industry that I know, and I always learn a thing or two from him when I have a chance to speak with him. I'm sure you have learned a few things from this conversation today, and if you did, feel free to share your comments on social media or anywhere this podcast is discussed. Make sure to subscribe to Translation Company Talk Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform, and keep your feedback coming. It helps us make this podcast better. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.